0: I started Marley's Mutt's in 2009 coming out of liver failure, you know, having no future, barely any sobriety, zero money, no resources, very, very ill. You know, I still, I mean, I was terminally ill for almost, you know, almost two years.
1: Welcome to season one of Healthier Today, a podcast from AB Sound Production. I'm your host, Jared Talavera, public health advocate. You will hear stories of individuals from around the world who have undergone tremendous triumphs to live healthier today. They also offer you lessons to do the same. In today's episode, we have Zach Scow, founder of the charity Marley's Mutt's Dog Rescue. Zach overcame drug and alcohol addiction as well as liver disease. Establishing the charity Marley's Mutt's Dog Rescue inspired his recovery. To say he had a difficult start to life is an understatement. Zach states he struggled with alcoholism throughout his life and struggling with alcohol dependency until his late 20s.
0: Honestly, I would say that I've been alcoholic my whole life. You know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when I, you know, quote unquote, became an alcoholic or a drug addict. I've always felt, I've always felt uncomfortable in my own skin or I felt it, it to be very exhausted to be in in my skin just to try to exist. As a child, you know, I I think I had a lot of expectations surrounding me, you know, I played every sport and was really good in school. And I guess I wasn't a bad looking kid, but I had a real hard time adjusting to a lot of just the pressures of life.
1: He was a victim of sexual abuse as a child, causing him to disconnect from intimacy and avoid romantic situations.
0: I had been sexually abused as a kid, a family member and uh, you know somebody who i was who i kind of grew up with that definitely catalyzed that made the situation much worse because i and I didn't realize it at the time I had no idea they were related but it was very very difficult for me to to feel comfortable around women you know that my the person who had, um, had taken advantage of me was uh, was a woman therefore as a kid you know you can imagine when you're trying to learn how to be comfortable with the opposite sex and you're, you're coming of age and you're maturing and, but you don't understand why you're terrified of women. You know, I remember probably 10, you know, taking my first sips of alcohol out of my, uh, my mom's bottle of wine in the fridge. And then my dad's, you know, my dad's house, I come from a, a broken family and my mom having, you know, mixers and parties. And, you know, I would, I would mix the drinks at, you know, nine, 10, 11, I'd be the, the bartender and, you know, take a little bit for myself here and there and, yeah, I just became more and more dependent on alcohol as kind of a tool, you know. It, I felt like I could be funnier. I felt like, I, you know, we grew up kind of drinking and fighting. You know, I, I, I come from the beach, from a place called Hermosa Beach, and it's very much so a culture of drinking and fighting. You know, I, I was happy to, uh, to fall into that, that uh, category.
1: How did you make sense of the, the sexual abuse when, when you were so young? What, it's a very good question. What was going I through your mind? I didn't. I had no
0: idea there was a connection, you know. I always I thought about, you know, I would have flashbacks, I guess is what you would call them, you know, I would think about those situations and how uncomfortable they were, but I had no idea those uncomfortable situations. You know, for people who let me back up a little bit, for people who have dealt with sexual abuse, it's really strange how we view ourselves as not victims and how we view ourselves as contributors to whatever you know, victimization was um, levied against us and also because there wasn't copulation and there wasn't like penetration you know so just like people have varying opinions on what an alcoholic what constitutes an alcoholic or what constitutes a drug addict people have varying opinions of what constitutes a sexual abuse so because i wasn't raped i i didn't think i'd been sexually abused so the the concept never floated around in my mind it was more just something that happened over a period of years that I, that was very uncomfortable for me. You know, it was just, it was, a, it was a series of probably a dozen experiences that I really didn't enjoy that I, I as a kid, you don't know it's going to affect you later. You're not thinking to yourself, boy, I'm going to be paying for this when I'm 26, <laughs> you know? So it really wasn't until I got sober and it wasn't until I started to speak with a therapist, you know, about when I got sober, I could no longer mask my, how scared I was, you know, everything became real again. And I really wanted to have a family, and I really wanted to have kids, and I really wanted to be comfortable, and I really wanted to be in love, and I really wanted to be there for my lover. And I really wanted to um, explore a sexual identity that I've, I've never really explored, you know, and, and just be comfortable with myself. I didn't know how to do it, man. I just didn't know what was wrong with me. When I was a kid, I thought I was gay. Not because I liked boys, just because I, I grew up in a gay household, and, and I felt so uncomfortable around women. That I thought, well shit, maybe that's what this is. You know, I just was looking for answers. So when I did make the connection, when a therapist helped me put two and two together and say, like, hey, Zach, you know, you you've been through what is considered a, you know, a very traumatic your your first intimate experiences were extremely traumatic, you know, with someone that you trust. And that that essentially, you know, broke your <laughs> your in- intimacy bone and, um, and and you're gonna need to do a lot of work. To correct it,
1: he credits therapy with helping him come to terms and overcome his sexual abuse. He claims that therapy he had a conscious and subconscious realization. Through hard self evaluation work, he was able to connect trauma with how his anxiety manifests itself, allowing him to move on from his past.
0: Uh, one of the things that I was really. Um, surprised about and and so delighted about therapy was it was almost instantaneous you know there was a conscious and a subconscious realization what just once i could talk about it Just, just when i got it off my chest and when i put two and two together you know when she helped me connect that trauma with how i how my anxiety manifests itself with women it was a true aha moment you know and i've never had to go back to how nervous i was then I'm still nervous you know i still am trying to grow and get through it there was a a positive effect almost the the minute i opened up you know the minute that that um i was guided through my trauma and how it relates to my life you know everything changed i i i began to feel more comfortable sexually to be in a position to um to to just grow And and it might be weird for me to constantly be referring to uh sexual abuse and my sexuality but you know sexuality is as important as anything as a human being. It's as important as as our ability to communicate right now. It's as important as our ability. You know, it's, it's one of the most sentient, you know, human things you can do is to, is to make love and procreate. And I was thinking, I was, I was like doomed out of that experience for the rest of my life. And really, so if there's anybody out there who's listening, who has been through sexual trauma and thinks that's going to be their identity, thinks they're not going to be able to shake it, you know, you you 100% can, and it actually ends up becoming kind of like your power. You know, I feel very, I have a, a big sense of confidence that I was able to kind of move through that, you know, that it no longer defines me.
1: How did your relationships, not just say with your romantic partner, your wife, but people in general, how did that change once you had all this therapy?
0: Oh, well, you know, I finally got some tools. The worst thing we can do out there um, is be self-will run riot. You know, I think that because we've reached a certain age or been through a certain amount of things, that we don't need to run things by other people, that we don't that we can just always rely on ourselves for the for the best and brightest you know information or advice. you know and and what I learned very early on in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, you know I shouldn't say Alcoholics Anonymous. what I learned very early on in twelve step programs, both both having to do with narcotics and alcohol. Is that I'm I'm not the best decision maker. I'm not the one who should be necessarily making decisions in my life all the time. I should not have carte blanche to go ahead and run Zach's life. Like I need to be bouncing things off of other people. I need to be um, finding for easier, softer ways, less reactive ways. And I think one of the best things that I mean the best thing that ever happened to me was being involved in a program like that, in a twelve step program that allows me to address my past, address my present address my future and give me really tools to, um, figure out how to, how to navigate life. Cause the minute we just depend on ourselves for everything. And we just think we have all the answers. You know, we, we end up playing God in our lives and we end up not having, const- we don't, we don't leave an avenue for constructive criticism. I think everybody should be in a 12 step program, man. I really do. It applies to everything. You know, it's accountability, it's rigorous self-evaluation and uh, you know, some people think self-evaluation means self-hate or self-evaluation means um, means just, just being critical and always down on yourself. And man, us as, as, as uh, just um, human beings in the world right now, we, we have a crisis of criticism. We, we just always feel down on ourselves. But but there's a way to be critical of yourself and, and really have it be a victory. And, and that's what I feel like in the program. It really just gave me a, a comfortable place to... Really, really dive in deep and just look at every aspect of myself and do it with someone who I trust, you know? So, you know, walk through these things with, with, uh, with a sponsor or with someone that you trust who can really be critical without being insulting or, or, or defamatory,
1: you know? He had to demonstrate that he had the ability to be sober. Zach found the strength and inspiration to overcome his alcohol addiction and live a more health-focused life by focusing on his work rescuing dogs. About two years ago, I had former Movember CEO, Adam Garoni. He, he's an he's mm-hmm. Australian and he now lives in Los Angeles. And he was saying that one of the most difficult things for men to do was just to open up and speak about what they're going through and any of the difficulties that they're going through. And what he found mm-hmm. was that one way for men to, to really open up was to to go to their barber, to their barbershop. When no. they get their hair cut, all for some, mm-hmm. for some reason, they end yeah. up just opening up well, and speaking about all. You're, the-
0: you're in a, yeah, you're in a place of vulnerability. You know, you're 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 in a physical place of vulnerability, and there's pressure on you to you know all the focus is on you. You have a person looking at you. You have a person like tending to you. So if they're tending to your hair, they might as well tend to your emotions as well. You know, it's funny that you bring that up. It's actually a pretty good segue. What I have found is that there really is a new masculinity de- developing and propagating throughout at least the United States. And I mean, Australia is a very masculine, you know, or at least projective masculine country. <clears throat> and what happened, you know, I work in prisons every week, you know, so I spend the majority of my time training dogs inside of a prison setting, or a lot of my time working with our trainers and working with inmates in a prison setting.
1: Zach expresses his belief there is a new masculinity evolving across the United States. He runs a program with prison inmates, teaching them how to train dogs, but also to help them learn about emotional availability and honesty. Zach's work encourages men to talk about things that men don't think they're able to talk about. He credits the program's success to his dogs and own emotional openness, which both promote vulnerability.
0: And our entire whole program is about emotional availability and honesty. It is about opening yourself up completely. I mean, a rigorous, honest evaluation of yourself. Why are you feeling scared? What are you scared of? What are you intimidated by? What, you know, all these things that men don't think they're supposed to talk about. And especially in a prison setting, speaking openly about your emotions is not really allowed. It's not allowed from a gang culture standpoint, it's not allowed from a weakness standpoint. You're kind of opening yourself up to, to, victimization if you show weakness or demonstrate your emotions. Uh, but in our program, we provide a safe space for that. And it's been, it's been incredible. The, the, the overarching and kind of unanimous feedback is because we have our guys give speeches. They have to give testimonials. They have to, they're required to be vulnerable. And what happens is almost instantaneously, they become addicted to vulnerability. They, they want to talk about their emotions. They want to talk about their feelings. They want to share and they want to help. And we have this this reciprocal kind of constant narrative and dialogue going on at all of our prisons, where we're all there for one another. We're so emotionally invested in one another. Whether it's talking about you know the crime that landed them in prison, whether it's talking about their marriage, their kids, their loneliness, what they've been through, their the broken homes, being beaten as children, abused as children, all of these things that they've never talked about. You know, the floodgates just pour open. Part of that being because dogs are involved and dogs just promote that kind of vulnerability. And part of that being because myself and, and our staff kind of, um, establish the tempo and, and come, we share our experience, strength and hope. And that gives them kind of permission to, to do it themselves. And, uh, it's, it's just one of the most beautiful things in the world to me. I mean, there's, there's nothing more beautiful to me than a man who takes accountability for his emotions and is willing to, to express it. Honestly, it takes a lot of guts. And I think, um, I think that's the future of masculinity. You know?
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I was like, hey, "How? How did you go from these men that did not want to talk about their emotions to just being really opened up? How did? How did the dogs become the catalyst for, for <clears throat> all of this?" Well,
0: dogs. There's, I think, two things happen. One is the dogs make everyone comfortable. So the dogs are there's a there's an innate therapy that dogs offer there's a comfort there's a there's just something innate about dogs that make you make you feel more comfortable about being vulnerable but then also it's just about um doing it ourselves so when we when so i'll go in there and i'll talk about things that are happening in my life you know we we had a real detrimental kind of um cancel culture campaign against myself you know where a group of people who are still after us. You know, um, we're, I was receiving regular death threats. My my wife is receiving threats at her place of work. People sending things to our house. Police having to do welfare checks. I mean, it was threats to my child. You know, threats that my my child's image is going to end up on every child molester website. And this is coming from every 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 possible angle. So I, you know, I, I went into prison. One day, I went into prison, terrified that my guys in prison were going to see some of this coverage, all these people coming after me. They were posting terrible things, saying bad things. And so I went in there and I just shared it with them. And I said, Hey, look, this is what I'm going up against. And they all, you know, so many of the guys pulled me aside one by one, because we're in there for four hours every week and pulled me aside and just said, Hey man, this is, I dealt with something very similar in here. And you know, I've been locked up for 24 years and I have a wife and, and then this is my experience with when people are coming into my life and I'm helpless to do anything about it because I'm locked up. And there was just this avalanche of, of uh, empathy for me and and guys wanting to help and just say, Hey, I'm here for you. I mean, it was literally guys saying, Hey, we'll, we'll do anything for you. We just, we want you to be okay. You've done so much for us. What can we do for you? And that really just establishes this exchange where um, from that point on, that's kind of all we talk about. It's um it's addictive because it's so real. We're, we're so used to having, these cookie cutter conversations in life that really don't, you know, we're talking about the weather. We're talking about, uh, the fires in Australia. Not that that's not a subject that should be talked about, but I'm not divulging anything emotionally to you. And you're not divulging anything emotionally to me, but when you have an emotional discussion where you're connecting on an emotional level about the human experience and about fear and about, you know, cause I mean, life is, I don't think most people are honest about this, but, but life is so uh, consists of so much fear that we don't identify as fear, you know, that we don't, we don't, we identify it as anxiety or we identify it as nerves or we identify it as, you know, things that it's not necessarily, people are afraid of the F word, you know, uh, and, and men are very afraid of, of being emotional. So yeah, it's just it's just an open reciprocal exchange. You know, once you provide a safe space, my experience is once you provide a safe space for that, emotional exchange then it just picks up speed you know it keeps it's like an, an avalanche of uh, vulnerability
1: <laughs> so it's like when you can be vulnerable first then the other person can be vulnerable too yeah yeah
0: exactly yeah totally and some of the most important you know wonderful lessons I've ever learned have come from guys in there some of the most attentive you know you can tell when someone's brushing you off and when someone's being attentive to you it, it shows how much they care when they're making eye contact with you and their their body language and And that's what these guys are, you know, they really, really care about you. And they, it's, it feels wonderful to have that. I mean, even like the shirt I'm wearing now is canine breakthrough. This is one of our guys who served many years in prison and was in our program in prison for several years and is now on the outside, you know, a very, very successful dog trainer, probably the most successful dog trainer in, in orange County. You know, I I love this man and, and, and our, our conversations that we have now that, that we have together when he's out are very emotional. I mean, we always check in with each other, and it's and it's I love you, you know. We say I love you to each other. It's I'm proud of you. It's um, it's things that men don't normally say in in passing. And I'm so grateful for those relationships. I'm so grateful for how real that is. You know, it really really makes you feel like you're plugged into, um, you know, just uh, deep elements of life. Like one of my one of my early sponsors always said, you got to get to the bone marrow of life, the bone marrow of it. You know, you got to crack it open and get to the nitty gritty, and and that's what I feel like we we get to do with our our student inmates is uh, be, because of uh, the vulnerability they've embraced and, and the vulnerability we're willing to demonstrate, you know?
1: So does Zach's prison program work? The statistics speak for themselves. In the USA, the recidivism rate for violent offenders within three years is 50%. Within six years, it is 75%. And within nine years, it is 90%. Sadly, almost all violent offenders end up back in prison. Marley's Mutt's dog rescue recidivism rate is 0%. Like a few years ago, I think about two years ago, I had um, a guest on my blog, Cosmate, who's the fitness CEO of Combody in New York City. He used to be a former inmate, and now he's, he's training all these prisoners who've left um, prison. Mm-hmm. And he's helping them get a job now as personal trainers. And what they found was that the recidivism rate has gone down once they've mm-hmm. um, started going through this program of being a, go, going through a personal training program and, and helping mm-hmm. other people with their, with their fitness. How yep. long has the recidiv- recidivism rate changed once you started implementing this prison? It, it's radical. I mean, it's night and day.
0: So to give you some statistics, in, in the United States of America, I'm going to throw a bunch of statistics out that taken as a whole will blow your mind. Uh, first of all, 25% of them, the world's incarcerated are in the United States, not China, not Russia, you know, not Indonesia, but the United States of America, not Australia. <laughs> uh, and um, We spend almost $200 billion a year locking up people in America. That's 2.5 million incarcerated men, women, and children. Um, One in every four black males is in some form of the correctional correctional institutions. And it costs, in the state of California, where I live now, it costs on average $83,000 a year to incarcerate one person. One person a year, it costs $83,000, which is well more than I make annually to incarcerate one person. The recidivism rate, for violent offenders, so people who have, created, who have committed a violent crime, the recidivism rate within three years is about 50%. The recidivism rate within six years is 75%, and within nine years is something like 90%. So almost all violent offenders end up back in prison. Our statistics now that we've been running for four years, I think we have something like 30 guys out of prison, our recidivism rate is zero. None of them have gone back to prison, and they're all violent, almost, I mean, I don't know of any who are not violent offenders. So all of the guys we deal with are violent offenders. So that tells you something right there. I mean, just with those guys in the last however many years, we've saved the state of California millions of dollars, which segues into another topic, getting coverage and trying to get financial support for programs like this, which absolutely help our our culture from top to bottom. Because you have to understand, it's not just keeping people from out of prison and not just keeping our governments from having to spend a lot of money. It's helping prevent future victims. When those violent offenders don't commit another crime to end up back in prison, they're not victimizing someone. When they do commit a crime, there's a victim involved. There's a family involved. There's there's a victim that might never be the same. Their children might never be the same. And we don't have any accountability for victimhood. We, We send inmates out into the world you know, with these returning citizens can be locked up. Many of our guys have been locked up for decades, decades and decades. Some who are, I'm 40. You know, there are several of the guys that I'm closest with in there who've been locked up for 20 plus years, you know, since they were children. And we don't, we don't, we don't give them any of the tools, whether they be emotional or vocational to succeed on the outside. We basically sent them to criminal prison or criminal school for however many decades to get better at, committing crimes and and networking with other criminals, but we haven't given them any hope. We haven't given them any any um any hope of a future to provide for their families and really a, a road to redemption spiritually. And and working what our program has done working with dogs and being able to succeed on the outside is really give guys a hundred percent path to redemption where they can say, Yeah, I did this time in prison. And now what I do is I rehabilitate dogs, you know, and I I help rescue dogs, I help train dogs, I help help fortify the relationship between humans and their, you know, their best friends. So it's, uh, there's just nothing like it. I'm so proud of this program and I'm so proud of w- what it's created and, and the potential moving forward. I mean, we could, if we just had someone believe in us and we just had someone hear me out and go, Oh wow. Well, what's the recidivism? Okay. All right. What's it doing about the culture? You know, cause it's, it's revolutionized the whole culture in prison as well. People of different races who would never talk to each other, who don't, who aren't allowed to communicate you know prison is a fundamentally segregated place whites blacks southern mexicans northern mexicans armenians bulldogs whatever what have you it's very separated and in our program it's not you know they have the, the, the an opportunity to communicate and commune so i just it, it's just remarkable and i and i really have huge hopes that it's going to change the way the prison system looks in America moving forward.
1: It's amazing how, how dogs have just been able to, to break down all these barriers and, and provide a lot more meaning to, to these men in, in prisons. Like yeah. in, in Australia right now, the, the prisons are just overfilling and there's hardly any more space for, for people to go into prisons. And so mm. now we need these programs to help people stay out of prisons and and for people to to be able to become productive people in the community as well yeah, which is what 100% which is what the the program that your your company is doing
0: yeah yeah positive change is is just that it's obviously positive change but it's it's very much more than that you know the the economy of of the pet industry has reached 70 billion dollars the music industry in the United States of America is a thirty-five billion dollar industry. So that's record sales, uh, you know, shows. So the pet industry is double, double the size of the music industry, and it's been typically dominated by. Uh, this may sound strange, but white women. It's a, it's a training, rescue, all of that is a white women's kind of world. This is not a very popular statement. I'm just, but it's just objective. I'm just making a statement of fact. But as we adopt more shelter animals, as the paradigm is shifted from shop to adopt, um, there's a gigantic need for behavioral modification, for agility, I mean, for um, any number of different types of training. And so there's a gigantic need, I mean, a Herculean need for qualified professionals to fill this space. And what our program is doing is providing qualified professionals who, the minute they get out of prison, can be successful in, in the the dog training, dog walking—you know—pet services industries. They become professionals the minute they get out of prison. And a lot of these guys, you know, were kind of street-level hustlers. They come from broken homes. They've been surviving on the streets for a long time. And that hustle, that that transition from kind of street hustler, even drug dealer, to small business owner, to small business owner trainer is is very seamless. And we have guys, you know, men of color, guys who are who you would never expect would be dog trainers in this space because because they come from the very poor areas of of California or or anywhere else. And and they're now on the streets. I mean, we have seven or eight guys now, or more than that, who are professional dog trainers on the outside, guys who are, are men of color, Hispanic, black, Asian, which we didn't expect to see. We didn't expect that part of this program to be so successful. And we just want to take it to the moon. We want to facilitate as many guys as possible to, join this really robust economy the minute they get out of prison so that they can provide for their families so that they'll never have to go back to a life of crime so that they can be on the up and up and and find a path towards redemption and not create any more victims and all that good stuff
1: by starting inmates on a dog trainer career path zach humanizes them and gives inmates the power to think of themselves as something more than a prisoner what i absolutely loved was how when you were explaining to the prisoners that you are not a prisoner, you are a dog trainer. I love yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and it changes right? their mindset.
0: It feels so good to say it too, because you know I just relate to these guys a lot, and, and you you relate to you feel from them how exhaustive it is to have worn the identity of inmates for twenty years. If you've worn if you've worn that blue jumpsuit jumpsuit that says California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations prisoner on it for decades. Imagine what that does to your psyche. Imagine what that does to how you feel about yourself. You know, I'm, and you've probably a lot of these guys have had nothing but male figures in their life tell them what pieces of shit they are. You know that they're not enough, that they can't do it. So to be told that they are enough, that they can do it, and that they're not, you know, inmates anymore, uh, it really feels great. And I think it's something they deserve to hear. We don't need to be so punitive. I don't. If being punitive and, and punishing these guys as much as possible were effective, you know, I guess I would say, okay, punish them. But I don't think treating them thoroughly, punitively, you know, just having the entire prison experience be a punishment, uh, I don't think that does anybody any good.
1: Doesn't do anyone know? good, and then when they go out, yeah. it doesn't help them become productive members of the community.
0: Yeah, and as you know, you know, people who have been been victimized. And, and yes, these guys have created victims, but make no mistake about it. When they're in prison, they're, there's a lot of guys that are being victimized, victimized by the I mean, literally and physically and victimized, you know, emotionally and, and all the rest of it. You know, they 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 come out of that prison, prison experience damaged, you know, and, and having gone through great stress and great trauma. And um, we don't really give them any sort of a pathway to exercise that or deal with it. It's just all right. You're out of prison, you know. Good luck finding a job. You're not going to be able to get one because we put a bunch of things in place to make that virtually impossible. You can be basically one of two things, you know, you can live off the government for the rest of your life or you can be like a short order cook. You know, they provide very little options for people,
1: you know. Yes. So, like prisons and like recidivism, like all this, it's just a huge problem. It's not like US, it's both Australia and US as well. Mm-hmm. It's just an in- but it's an amazing thing that what you're doing with, with just the com- with the company that you're doing and the, the program, like that's just amazing.
0: It is, um, it is a weird thing that it exists in all these countries because it's for the rest of us, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And what I really like about our program, what I like about social media is it's helping humanize these guys. So our countries, Australia, America, Mexico, We're never going to change how we incarcerate people, you know, until we really start to expose it or, or talk about it. People don't, the way designed and the way it's presented in America is these are bad, bad people. These are maybe permanently broken people. These might be people we should throw away, lock up and throw away the key, you know. So maybe let's just look at them that way. It's a lot easier for us to think about it that way, that they're just bad people we're protecting the world from. Than looking at them as, I mean, I look at them as kids. I look at every single one of them as having been a child at some point. I look at every single one of them as a gigantic source of potential. I mean, Daniel Robinson, he's one of my best friends and he's a former, you know, incarcerated dog trainer. He's also on the outside, very successful career as a dog trainer, but he's one of the smartest guys I know. And I love talking to him. I love sharing with him emotionally. Um, I love getting advice from He's Just a smart guy. He's a brilliant guy. And he could do anything. I mean, he could be the next Steve Jobs. I'm not even kidding. I mean, he's ridiculously smart. And the system as it exists now would have just chewed him up and spit him out and said, good luck. And he probably would be locked up end up serving time the rest of his life. But now he's on a path where he can, you know, do anything. I mean, he got locked up at 17. I mean, he was he was 17 years old, you know? God damn, do I remember some of the things I did at 17, man? You know, any number of which could have ended me, landed me in prison. Any number of which could have landed me in prison. There's a lack of empathy. There's like an institutional lack of empathy for people who are in prison. It's like, screw you guys. You know, you're bad people. You got funny tattoos that are in weird places and, you know, it makes it easy for us to just not like you. And we're just going to keep you there and we're going to be safe over here and you guys stay over there. And, and that's about it. We don't look at them as pieces of, We don't look at them as human beings. We don't look at them as sources of potential. We don't look at them as assets. We look at them as liabilities. And and it's time we start thinking differently.
1: Reflecting on his work, he explains... I think the thing I've learned the
0: most about myself is that I'm extremely sensitive. You know, that um, that I care about what people think to my own detriment, that I say yes too much you know i don't know how to say no you know i have problems with boundaries you know i've learned so much about myself in this process it's it's you know i've learned my my tendency is to focus on the negative things you know what have i learned that's like negative about myself but i've also learned a tremendous amount of positive things um i've learned you know how how truly wonderful human beings are at their core i've learned that we have a tendency to um to discount human beings and and much more so harp on the negative than the positive. You know, I personally, if you're paying attention, if you are paying attention, I see beauty all around me in in human beings constantly. But it's, it's so much more fun as a culture or it's so much more comparative as a culture to talk about what people do that is bad. Because if we talk about someone doing something bad, it makes us feel better about ourselves. So the flip side of that coin is I've also learned how awful people can be. You know, how truly, truly terrible people can be out of a place of fear, out of a place of unaddressed trauma. You know, the rescue community, this world, I mean, myself included, I I got into this. I started rescuing dogs in 2003, you know, a complete alcoholic and drug addict. I started Marley's Mutts in 2009, coming out of liver failure, you know, having no future, barely any sobriety, zero money, no resources. Very, very ill. You know, I still—I mean, I was terminally ill for almost—you know—almost I, I, two years. What I've learned is that there's a lot of hurt people in this in this line of work, and there's a lot of hurt people that won't hesitate to take out their own frustrations about themselves onto you. You know, and and project. Just a, there's just a bit of a, of a lack of honesty. I wish there were a little bit more honesty and accountability because there uh, there's far too many people that are so negative and so mean to one another and. And it serves little to no purpose. I mean the amount of the amount we could get done, and the people we could attract to this work if we loved one another instead of um, trying to poke holes in one another and sink one another's ships, and downgrade, and 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 just—it's pretty ugly, man. You know, I've seen some really, really ugly things said and done to some really, really wonderful people, and that includes our guys. That includes people saying terrible things about our our graduates because they are quote unquote inmates it's um it's all its a strange uh, genre of service work
1: and how are you building trust with with say the community so you've got this program you're training inmates to become dog trainers how are you building that trust with the community
0: well the best thing to do with the community and what's been most successful is social media so what's been incredible is is from the dog rescue standpoint we like we take people into the shelter we take but so like you from being in Australia, you may never get to come to a shelter and see what it's like to have 500 barking dogs and go in there and save some lives and, and come, you know, go in with no dogs, come out with five or six of these bewildered, uh, what the hell just happened? Are we, are we good? Are we safe? What's happening? I don't know. Are we all We right? smelling like poop, covered in poop. Don't know where their parents are. What You know, uh, we get to bring people into that experience and we get to get to allow the public to, to, to. Almost be dog rescuers themselves.
1: Zach recognizes his work with animal shelters as a true group effort
0: because you know the work that people can do as digital advocates and as donors and as cross posters is almost as important as the work we're doing. Sitting here with you on this podcast, this opportunity to reach people that you, that you've connected with is uh, is is this helps the dogs critically, you know. And if everybody just did their part to help everybody. It, we would be such a happier world, especially, I, I think it's the fuel we run on. I really do. I think fundamentally human beings run on the fuel of service. We just, we've got so much into service of self that we forgot what it is to serve people. And we don't realize that that's the real money. That's the real glory is is in service to others. You know, that's what's given me my value, maybe to a too much of a degree. You know, I, I tend to think my identity is, is that is like, you know, acts of service, being of service. And I think um, in order to be more balanced, I should probably rethink that and start, you know, to focus on self-care and some (laughs) compassion for myself, you know, because I don't get a lot of time, man. It's like just about all dedicated to them, you know? So um, yeah, what I've also learned, uh, one last shot to the American culture, what I've learned is that, um, man, I don't even know if it's important to say, but People would much rather, it's not okay to be perfectly imperfect anymore. You know, people want you to be perfect. It's not, it's not okay to, to mess up. It's not okay to be human. We've, we've lost, you know, maybe because we are kind of a heroized in this line of work because we're in involved in rescue and we're kind of like first responding to a degree. We're helping save lives. People love dogs, all of that. We, we get um, propped up on these pedestals. And then the minute we don't do something perfect or, or we or if fallible in any way, you know people want to turn you into a monster. they want to cancel you out. I mean, they want to eliminate you. you know I, I've been doing this for sixteen years, man. I mean, with very little time off, you know, dedicating myself for sixteen years and and all it took was a couple of very motivated, very bad people to try to eliminate me and they almost succeeded. you know um they, you would take sixteen years of dedicated work to helping animals and people you know people and animals and uh, and really making really big gains for our culture I, I think saving thousands of animals and people would would eliminate me if if they could and simply because they don't don't like me or don't for for whatever reason you know and uh, i think that's just so dangerous and so unhealthy and it and it really is just one big projection it's people who don't feel good about themselves haven't exercised what they don't feel good about they don't know what they're truly feeling and so what do we do when we're frustrated and we're and we're angry or we're upset. Is we take it out on other people, you know? Miserable people want to make others feel miserable, and um, there's a there's just an endemic culture of that now. Um, and it makes me sad, man. It makes me, um, you know. I've seen people that I that I love that bring so much to this work. One person in particular, whose name I, I can't mention, but I've I've almost seen him go away. And he, mm-hmm. this is a person who I absolutely love. I love what he's about. I love what he's revealed. I love what he's how he's brought um, the work that we do into the forefront. He's done so many amazing things, but all it took was a few really nasty people to basically, you know, beat him up until he re- retreated into his den, you know, to lick his wounds, and, and none of that was necessary. And, and you don't see it in other lines of work. You don't see people. You don't see paramedics from competing paramedic firms attacking one another. You don't see like the Upland Fire Department getting in a brawl with the Redondo Beach Fire Department. You know they're just all on the same team. They just we're all going to work to try to serve our community and put out fires. And you know all of that. All that being said, there is a fellowship in this community of of rescue, and and it is incredible. And and when we those group of people that that do exist to boost one another up and be there for one another and and help uh, be a sounding board for one another and check in with one another. That's been invaluable, man. That's been really, really special. And I'm so glad that there's those that, that, that there's those opposing forces, you know, that, that it's not just the negativity that we do have a really strong opposing positive force that is making a lot of gains.
1: When I asked him what he would tell his 18-year-old self, he stated.
0: You know, first and foremost, I would say everything's gonna be okay. And and probably I would say don't be afraid to be you. Don't be afraid to be you. Because for a long time I was very afraid. I still am afraid, you know, of a lot of things, but afraid to be me, afraid of opinions, afraid of letting people down, afraid of expectations, afraid of all of those things, afraid of, you know, wondering, am I okay? Am I enough? Mainly, am I enough? Am I enough? Narrative that's constantly repeats itself, that I'm not enough. So that's what I would tell myself. My initial reaction when you said that was to talk about something having to do with alcohol or drugs, you know, to like redirect myself away from those things. But honestly. I wouldn't change it, you know. If I didn't, if I didn't go into liver failure, if I didn't almost die from this, I would never have gotten better. You know, it, it would have haunted me my whole life, and I would have died slowly. I Never had a family, you know. So it took what it took, and I, I thank God every day for liver failure. I thank God every day that it was that abrupt, you know, very dramatic. This is the end of this relationship for you, Zach. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, of course, I could have just kept drinking. Um, I've seen plenty. I've watched two people who got liver transplants and who drank themselves to death. You know, um, one of whom was a sponsee. So I've seen, I've seen it firsthand. But yeah, I, I would, I would let that, even if I could go back and warn myself, I would let that unfold because there's no substitute for being able to have that kind of a really abrupt mirror like like that that definitive of a mirror in front of my face about my alcoholism if I didn't go into liver failure I would have just kind of thought I was maybe had a problem drinking or that I was alcoholic or I would have known it but I wouldn't have done anything about it I wouldn't have had the courage wouldn't have had the strength to do anything about it and I would have just faded away and and instead with with liver failure it was a I got to really bounce back kind of quickly and because my I was young enough and I did everything that was required of me to, to help my liver regenerate, to help my mind regenerate, my emotions develop. You know, I've been able to make an impact in this world that I, that I never in a million years would have been able to make. You know, I've been able to have countless um, liver transplant uh, sponsees, you know, people who are in liver transplant programs who, who I speak with regularly on, on diet, on, on emotions, you know, mainly we cry together. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, man, that, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of that, but that's what I would tell myself. Uh, while it's 1111 11, an incredibly powerful spiritual number i would tell myself that it's okay to be me yes
1: 1111 11. i love it yeah buddy <laughs> it's tat- it's tattooed right there
0: 1111 11.
1: that's power <laughs> yeah. we, we have two options in life we can we can be the hero of our story or we can view ourselves negatively just self pity you've come out all through the the alcoholism, the the drugs, the sexual abuse and you've created a lot of growth from yourself and you've also brought a lot of success for other people too. You've helped like inmates become dog trainers and you said, no, you are not an inmate. You are a dog trainer. I just love that. I love that. Um, What is one thing people can do To live healthier today.
0: Oh, I'm gonna go uh, two things. Two things that will change your life if you just allow yourself to do it. One is uh, walk your dog or multiple dogs. Go to a shelter, whatever, and just no phone and walk with an animal. Uh, Take a take a walking meditation with a dog, preferably a rescue dog. And dig with dig inside yourself. I'm not talking about a five minute walk. I'm talking more like an hour-long walk. Uh, and see what you discover about yourself. You know, take take that time to reset and vicariously live in, in something else. And then the other thing is just meditate, is meditate. I really recently found it as a tool. I had such a busy mind, you know, I've had a lot of concussions, a lot of drug abuse, a lot of the things that make it my mind a very busy place. But finding meditation and being able to I'll give that to myself. That kind of um, that mental deep breath is uh, life changing. I've never felt more clearer. I've never felt more available and less panicky. You know, um, the anxiety and the nerves. You know, a lot of us who deal with anxiety and, and I mean, chronic anxiety and insomnia, we think it's just never going to end. We just this is just what we have to do. We have to to live this this brutal struggle of being kind of afraid of everything what meditation has given me is some calm, some, some, some peace of mind and, and maybe even moments of serenity and serenity is something that gets batted around in sobriety a lot. I have never had serenity. I've never been in a, in a peaceful place of mind where people are like, I've been contented most likely, but I've never been serene. Never. You know, it is a, it is a, it is a sometimes torturous, like blender of nonstop, action up here. You know, meditating has really given me the, this kind of, it's not even an internal dialogue, but it's, it's just a rest and giving myself that time. uh, It's not just that hour that I'm meditating. It has this long-term effect, uh, for the rest of the day. And then for that night, that's invaluable. So if, and if you're going to start meditating for the love of God, take it easier on yourself. It is not something that just happens overnight. If you have a brain like mine, you know, you might just be seeing if you can get to 10 breaths you know it could be something as simple as that but uh, you'll get there
1: you know you'll get there you'll get there i love it we've had like this yeah. huge deep and meaningful conversation i i did not know that it was going to go in this direction but i loved it oh yeah, I, man. I love this a great
0: smile it, it's funny about how how important it is when you're engaging with someone especially on an emotional level that you feel like they're feeling you And the whole time, I feel like you're feeling me. So I really appreciate it.
1: All the little decisions and challenges ultimately make and shape you into a person that is constantly learning and growing. Happiness is not about struggling to the top of the mountain, nor wandering aimlessly in the valley, but enjoying the view on the climb to the peak. What is one lesson you took away from this episode? Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on Instagram. Use the hashtag #healthytoday and tag Zach at MarliesMutz and myself at Jared Talavera. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people discover Healthier Today. Sign up to the email list to stay up to date on new interviews and articles by going to jaredtalavera.com. This podcast was produced by Andy White from AB Sound Production. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss out on new episodes. Next week is the final episode of the season. You will hear from Professor Claire Wakefield. She's researching ways to improve the mental health and quality of life of children with cancer and for their families. Until next time, here's to you living healthier today.